0: First Corinthians is indeed, uh, on the one hand, a very sad book, and on the other hand, an incredible book of hope, uh, as the power of the gospel is clearly shared throughout the entire book. I once had someone say to me, if we in the modern church could only live like the ancient church in the first century did, things would be so much better. Well, the, the case of the Corinthian church, as we, as we see, makes it very clear that that's not the case. The fact is, is that the church now, uh, like the church then, is populated with sinners who've been saved by grace, who continue to live in a fallen and sinful world. On the one hand, we live with a certain realization of the incredible beauty and the presence of the risen Lord. But on the other hand, there's still the unrealized reality of our fallenness and our sinfulness. It seems that the biggest issue in the Corinthian church was one of worldliness, an improper understanding of the incredible life-changing reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The fact is that an improper understanding of the truths of the gospel will always result in one form or another of excess, either legalism or license. Legalism takes liberties with Scripture in that it makes application where there is none. It takes matters of conscience and makes them instead evidences of faith. License, on the other hand, takes evidences of faith and makes them matters of conscience. It would appear that the issues facing the Corinthian church had been ongoing for some time, as in 1 Corinthians 5.9, it indicates that 1 Corinthians was indeed not the first letter to be sent to the Corinthians to this church. Verses 14 to 15, the the title point there I have, Paul's paternal privilege, verses 14 and 15. Our passage this morning comes on the heels of Paul's scathing and sarcastic calling out of the Corinthian churchgoers who had deemed themselves to be above all others. They were, as George Orwell wrote, more equal than their fellows, In verse 14, Paul makes somewhat of a shift from his scathing rebuke without at the same time softening his stance. He writes, I do not write these things to make you ashamed. It's very important for us to notice here that Paul is not apologizing. In fact, very much the opposite. Notice his next words, To admonish you. To admonish isn't just an empty warning, but rather it's a warning that carries with it the underlying threat of punishment if the admonition is not obeyed. What the Apostle is doing here is assuring the Corinthians that his intentions are good. His intention is to effect change in their behavior, in their unearned high view of themselves, and to save them from impending and even eternal punishment. As one commentary aptly points out, shame touches only the heart, or, sorry, only the feelings, but admonition reaches the heart. The Greek here indicates that Paul is attempting to reach their minds, he's attempting to cause them to stop and to think about the illogical nature of their behavior. Paul is also appealing to his readers as my beloved children. His appeal here, I believe, is an attempt to appeal to their emotions as he takes them back to the time when he lived and he served and he taught among them as the founder of the church that they're a part of. In light of his appeal to the Corinthians as my beloved children, Paul's admonishing here is, is very similar to what, his te- what he teaches in Ephesians, in Ephesians 6, verse 4, where he appeals to fathers to not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The appeal here is based upon Paul's desire to see his spiritual children growing up in the Lord, that they would realize that the position they had before God was a position they had received because of Christ's righteousness, which had been imputed to them through his death and resurrection. Their position had nothing to do with them, how smart they were, how wise they were. No matter how much they believed themselves to be some sort of royalty, the fact remained that whatever position they had, they had in And because of Christ. In verse 15, Paul employs the literary tool of hyperbole when he says, For though you have countless countless guides in Christ, or as the King James translates, 10,000 instructors, The word translated guides in the English Standard Version, or guardians as the NIV translates, is a very, very difficult word to translate because it doesn't really have an equivalent meaning today. The word refers to a personal attendant, usually a slave, who had the special responsibility of accompanying a boy to and from school and teaching said boy about proper behavior, conduct, etc., this guide also had the responsibility of ensuring that his charge obeyed, earning them the distinction of being very severe men. Another thing to know about these guides was that they were very replaceable. So these guides were sort of like a modern, like an ancient Jiminy Cricket, that went with the boys to and from school to ensure that they did as they were supposed to. The point of Paul's hyperbole here, it's a distinction that no matter how many guides the Corinthian churchgoers may have had, none of them had the same level of authority to direct them as Paul, because none of them had the distinction of being a father to them. These guides in ancient times may have had the task of directing and upbringing of these sons, but none of them was the son's father. And as such, any authority that they had over the child was only because they had been granted that authority by the child's father. Some have tried to suggest that Paul is belittling here. That he's belittling these guides. But the fact that the, the phrase, in Christ, is attached to the end of the phrase would seem to negate that idea. Notice that Paul himself doesn't claim to have the authority to speak because he founded the Christian church. But rather, he grounds his authority in the fact that I became your father in Christ through the gospel. Always, always, as leaders in Christ's church... We are to act only on the authority and in the authority of the gospel. On the authority that is given to us by Christ. We are to act only on the authority of the gospel. On the authority given by Christ. I repeat that because it's so important. We can refer back to the beginning of chapter 4 to see what the duty of the Christian leader is. It says there, to be found faithful. But faithful to what? It says, faithful stewards of the mysteries of God. And what are the mysteries of God? The truth of the gospel, that Jesus Christ, as Paul had previously preached and taught in Corinth, to these very people who had now become puffed up and full of themselves. Paul is very careful here to ensure that he grounds the source of the Corinthian salvation clearly in Christ and not in himself. He's not claiming to be their father in the sense that it is because of him that they're saved, but rather that it is in or through Christ that they are saved. This may well reflect back on the fact, or to the fact that these people were, were picking for themselves leaders who they preferred over other leaders rather than realizing that all of these leaders, all of these teachers, had been sent to them for one purpose and that they served the same Christ and it was Christ himself who empowered them to do his work. Leaders in Christ's church do not ground their authority in their position, in their popularity with the people who they are called to serve, or in their personal accomplishments, but rather in the word of God. Often leaders in the church get themselves into trouble when they succumb to popular opinion, or to the threatening of the people they serve, or to worldly wisdom. Instead, leaders in the church are to be students of God's word, and to apply the truths of God's word to all aspects of our leadership even when it makes us unpopular or may cause us to come under attack. We now move to Paul's prideful posterity, verses 16 and 17. Paul now calls for a change as he writes, I urge you then. The first thing we need to see here is that the word then, or as the NIV translates, therefore, it tells us that what has preceded is about to impact what follows. Paul is using his position as a spiritual father in Christ of the Corinthian church to now urge a change in those to whom he is writing. King James uses the word beseech, which seems to bring with it a sense of pleading, The sense here is of a loving parent pleading with a wayward child to change the course of their lives before it is too late. The word means to exhort or entreat. It's a call for there to be a change of direction. It is a word that carries with it a punch, a sense of foreboding, a sense of threatening even. Paul's desire here is to put an end to this prideful, arrogant boastfulness and factionalism that has been allowed to creep into the church. And this has been his continuing appeal all the way through the the book so far. At first glance, we may look and see Paul's call to imitate himself uh, as just a a tad arrogant and even conceited. But this would be our 21st century viewpoint imposing itself upon a statement being made in the context of the first century. As D.A. Carson points out, in most pre-industrial cultures, sons followed in their father's footsteps. If one's father was a baker, you would in all likelihood also become a baker. If one's father was a shepherd, chances were very good that the the sons would become tenders of sheep. So, the apostle's call to his spiritual children to imitate him was a very natural thing for him to write and would not have been seen as out of place in the first century church. The fact, too, is that all Christian leaders ought to be the type of Christians infused with the love and grace of Christ who are able to stand before the people of God and say, Imitate me. Unfortunately, in our sinful, fallen states, that's something that's very difficult. But let me be clear, that's not an excuse. It's a challenge. But what were the Corinthians to imitate in Paul? Uh, Commentators believe that Paul may have well been a very uh, rather unimpressive man in appearance and demeanor, which very likely uh, is part of the reason that these very Corinthians were inclined to claim to be followers of other leaders in the early church rather than Paul. We like dynamic leaders. We like people that are impressive. He's calling for them to be faithful in their obedience to the gospel that he has preached to them when he founded this church. He's calling for them to lay aside their pride, They're arrogant, boasting in themselves, and to instead boast in what Christ has done for them. One commentary lays out Paul's uh, desire for the Corinthians to be imitators in this way. And he he looks back, he starts with uh, chapter 3, verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. The point in that verse, what they have is a gift given to them. It's a gift of grace. In chapter 4, verse 7, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Point. They were nothing extraordinary. Chapter 3, 5 to 9. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollo squattered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. The point? Don't think too highly of, you, of themselves as they're just field hands serving in the Lord's field. Chapter 4, verse 1. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Point? They were servants. Chapter 4, verse 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Teach each one, sorry, then each one will receive his commendation from, the, from God. The point? They are awaiting God's judgment to determine their trustworthiness and whether they had been trustworthy. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my messages were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. They were to avoid seeing themselves as a wise or elite because of their lofty talk, but instead were to rely on God in weakness. Brothers and sisters, this is who we are. This is who we're called to be. We are nothing outside of Christ. What we have has been given to us. We are truly nothing special apart from Christ. We ought not to think too highly of ourselves because what we have has been given to us. We are servants of the Lord, not masters. We will be judged based on our obedience And all of this ought to result in our not seeing ourselves as wise or elite, but instead it ought to drive us to rely on God. It's debated among commentators whether Timothy uh, here was, what Paul is saying that he's saying, was Timothy being sent uh, to the church at Corinth or was was that a, a past event? Had that already happened and the Corinthians had just chosen to ignore him? I lean towards the view that that says Timothy was en route at the very time that these words were being written. Uh, Why? Uh, If you look ahead to chapter 16, verses 10 to 11, Paul writes, When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Paul is sending Timothy to remind them of what they had been taught by the Apostle regarding the ways of being a follower of God, a follower of Christ. He's coming to remind them of the, that the truth of the gospel wasn't only a doctrinal truth, but a practical, life-changing truth as well. Timothy was the spiritual son of the Apostle. In fact, our passage, uh, Paul calls him my beloved son. Paul trusted Timothy to affirm or back up the message being sent via this letter. Paul may also have hoped that Timothy would be an example of how to live and how to act. Timothy, too, is thought to be a rather unassuming, even timid individual And this is important, I think, here because in sending Timothy, the Apostle himself can hardly be accused of sending in the heavy-handed cavalry. Rather, he is sending his son, who will speak for him, but it may be more gently than the Apostle himself would, as we will soon see. The message Paul is sending both in this letter as well as with Timothy, is a message reminding the readers and us of the ways of Christ and is not a message that is unusual or just for the church at Corinth. The message Paul refers to is the message of the unchanging yet life-changing message of the saving gospel of Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection. The message is Paul's call to not become arrogant, but rather to be humbly submissive to Christ and his teaching. It is a call to lay aside prideful, arrogant boasting in our abilities and see ourselves as we truly are, sinners, saved only by the grace of Almighty God through the vicarious death of his Son, Jesus Christ, and it's secured for us in in his resurrection from the dead. Next point is Paul's promise of punishment, verses 18 to 21. There seems here to be a transition, uh, and that Paul is no longer uh, addressing what was behind, but now he's he's looking forward, and he begins to, to move on a forward pattern, and he's addressing what is to come. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming. You remember back in chapter 1, Paul refers uh, to information that had been relayed to him via Chloe's people regarding the state of the Corinthian church. It's very possible that within that letter, within that information that he had received was that the Corinthians had become arrogant, and in their arrogance they assumed that they were scot-free, as Paul would never return to them. Paul may also have been anticipating that the Corinthians will be offended by the fact that Timothy, rather than Paul, will come to see them. See, it's often the case that when we become arrogant, we are easily offended by the strangest of things. And it may have been that Paul was anticipating that though they didn't believe he himself was going to come, and that he would ever set foot again in that church that they would be offended by the fact that he would dare to send a lesser, that he would send Timothy instead of coming himself. The arrogance of the Corinthians was as if to say, we're untouchable, and Paul wouldn't dare come here. Their arrogance is based on their pretensions to possess wisdom and their preference for one leader over another. Paul dispels the Corinthians' hope that he'll not come to them, in verse 19, he says, But I will come soon. In fact, later in the letter, Paul tells them even the time that he has in mind when he will come. In 16, verse 8, we read, But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. The wording here is, I will come to you soon. The NIV translates this phrase, very soon. And the King James, shortly The wording here can be translated speedily, hastily, quickly, shortly, soon, or get this, even suddenly. So the Corinthians had no real idea when Paul might show up. Suddenly could suggest that he could appear at any time. Then Paul adds this caveat. He says, if the Lord wills, which indicates that even in his desire to come to Corinth, to deal with the issues that he had been made aware of, he was still a servant of the Lord, and he would only come as the Lord permitted him to do. As God's people, this is the case with all of us. We can make all the plans we want, but at the end of the day, it is all dependent on the will of God. We ought to always seek the will of the Lord. We ought to always desire to determine how to obey him. Today, we receive the word of the Lord from the word of the Lord, the Bible. It's to the Bible that we're to look to determine what is the will of God. The apostle now makes an important contrast. He says, I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. Many times, people can talk a good game. But the real question is, is the power of the Holy Spirit truly evident in them? That is the power to live the Christian life. Paul speaks about those things that will endure. These things that will endure are the true power, is of God. Look back to chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And this verse tells us true power, as defined by the gospel, will appear to be foolish to those who aren't God's people. And also in chapter 1, verse 25, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. At the end of the day... This apparent foolishness and weakness is of God. And it's actually wisdom and strength. Secondly, true power is also of Christ. Chapter 1, verses 23 to 24. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God. The gospel, that we are saved by grace through Christ, makes no sense to the lost. But we who are called to salvation have the incredible assurance that Christ saves and that the plan of God in providing salvation through Christ is indeed the wise plan of God the Father. Thirdly, true power is found in the gospel Chapter 2, verses 4 to 5. My speech and my message are not plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Worldly wisdom suggests that the message of the cross is foolish, but indeed the power it is the power of God to save sinners. The point is is that Paul is not interested in what these people have to say, but rather whether their lives provide evidence that they are indeed saved by grace. We can claim all we want to believe rightly, but at the end of the day, the true evidence of what we believe is shown in how we live. As related to our context here, evidence of true faith is seen in how we live in community. It is seen in our humble submission to the teaching of the word of God. It is seen in our humble submission to the leaders God has given us to guide and to lead us. And it is seen in not thinking too highly of ourselves. Paul now expands on this thought of true power. For the kingdom of God does not consist of talk but in power. God's kingdom isn't a kingdom of talk, but a kingdom of power. But what kind of power? The true power of the kingdom is the power to change lives. Whether the power of the kingdom is truly present present is evident in changed lives and obedience to Christ and to his teaching. One commentator writes, The power of the kingdom produces true faith, true confession, true love, and a galaxy of true Christian virtues. Truly, when Christ reigns, how you sound isn't significant, but how you live. True orthodoxy, that is, right belief, will always result in orthopraxy, that is right living. What we actually believe will always be visible in how we live. And Paul concludes this passage with two questions What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? The apostle has indicated that the Lord, that uh, that he is willing, indeed, to come to visit the Corinthians. The question remains, how will he come? Will he come and beat them for their arrogant refusal to deal with the sin in their midst? Or will he come gently to teach and instruct them in order that such sin should never again come into their presence? Staying with the motif here of Paul as father and the Corinthians as his children brings to mind such verses as Proverbs twenty two fifteen, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him, or Proverbs twenty three thirteen to fourteen, do not withhold discipline from a child, if you strike him with a rod he will not die, if you strike him with the rod you will save his soul from shale. Paul's hope here is to exercise discipline as outlined in Galatians 6 verse 1. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Nonetheless, he is willing, if necessary, to resort to using the rod of correction, if that is what is needed to correct the wrongs in the church. Such is the responsibility An obligation of Christian leaders. In any institution, churches included, a small number typically shape the opinions, practice, conduct, and even the priorities of the institution. If these opinions, conduct, and priorities of these few are in turn shaped by the truths of the gospel, by the teachings of scripture, this can be an incredibly wonderful thing. On the other hand, if these opinions, conduct, and priorities are shaped by pride, arrogance, or a desire to be noticed, then they will be incredibly destructive, both to the Church itself and also to individuals. The path to this kind of destruction can, result, can be the result of the dynamic nature or giftedness of the few, but it also can be the result of the many, refusing to intervene out of fear of alienation or ostracism. This is especially true if the few are in positions of leadership or in positions of authority. Some will sit quietly by doing nothing. Some will simply slip away. And still others will become a part of the problem. Paul is warning the Corinthians in verse 21 to set their house in order. He's warning them to deal with their arrogance, which is causing them to take their eyes off the author of their salvation. In Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 3, Paul writes, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of grace. May this ever be our desire and our motivation for all that we do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this time that that we're able to spend together today uh, worshiping you, in community. Father, I pray that uh, as we live in community, that would be our greatest desire to live out the gospel. That we would, in grace and love, live out the gospel to our fellow believers. I pray, too, Father, though, that each of us would examine our hearts that we would examine to see have we become prideful, have we become arrogant? Is my pride and my arrogance causing me to drift away from the truth of the gospel? Father, I pray that this would be our desire to serve and honor and know you. Father, I pray that you would bless each one that is here today. Father, that you would Go before us, Father, as we go out this week, that it would truly be our desire to bring glory and honor to you in the things we do and say. And I pray that you would bless each here today. In your name, amen.